When last year ended, I, I was coming to a re realization about myself after serving as a pastor for 18 years that I, I realized I was still at the beginning of understanding uh, and practicing faithful prayer. I mean, I've known about prayer for almost all of my life growing up in a Christian home, so I didn't, it's not like I didn't understand what prayer was, but I don't know if I was utilizing it to, to the full effect. And so when the year was ending, um, I chose for 2019 a topic that I would dive in and read about outside of normal ministry needs and outside of the Bible was the topic of prayer. And so I selected books for every month to read through about prayer. And one book in particular that I had picked up a couple years prior and read through most of it uh, was a book entitled Prayer. When you talk about books and prayer, they're really creative with those titles. It's called Prayer. And Timothy Keller is the author, and it's on my list again to read through this year. But I just wanted to read the introduction because I think it kind of encapsulates a lot of what prayer is and how important it is. He, he writes this, and I can understand where he's coming from. He says, in, in the second half of my adult life, I discovered prayer. He says, I had to. In the fall of 1999, I taught a Bible study course in the Psalms. It became clear to me that I was barely scratching the surface of what prayer commanded and promised regarding then came the dark weeks in New York after 9-11 when the whole city, and he works as a pastor in New York City, it, the whole city sank into a, a kind of corporate clinical depression even as it rallied. For my family, the shadow was intensified as my wife Kathy struggled with the effects of Crohn's disease, and finally I was diagnosed with thyroid cancer. At one point during all this, my wife urged me to do something with her. We've never been able to muster enough self-discipline to do regularly. She asked me to pray with her every night, every night. And she used an illustration that crystallized her feelings well. And as I remember it, she said something like this. Imagine you were diagnosed with such a lethal condition that the doctor told you that you would die within hours unless you took a particular medicine, a pill every night before going to sleep. Imagine that you were told that you could never miss it or you would die. Would you forget? Would you not get around to it some nights? No, it would be so crucial that you wouldn't forget you would never miss. Well, if we don't pray together to God, we're not going to make it because of all we're facing. I'm certainly not. We have to pray. We can't let it slip our minds. The main thing that I want you to take away, if you take away anything from this morning in the Word, is that you won't make it unless you pray. The lesson we need to learn together and be reminded of this morning as a church family is we won't make it unless we pray. You won't make it. So no matter what James brings up in these verses, and there's a lot of things in these verses, it was a fun week in study. Oaths or suffering or singing or anointing with oil or confessing sins one another, don't let any of those things rise to the top. The thing that he's driving home is prayer. That's the point. That's what James is driving home to our hearts this morning. We won't make it unless we pray. So in light with that, turn with me to the last chapter of James, chapter 5. And we're going to look at verses 12 through 18. If you're using a Bible that's provided there in the seats, it's on page 952. And I encourage you to follow along with us. James, chapter 5. Starting at verse 12. But above all, my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, 
but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he'll be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again and heaven gave rain and the earth bore its fruit. Remember this letter that we've been looking at for a number of weeks is written to people who are suffering. This was written to Christians who've experienced the hardships of life and they're real people, they're whole people in a broken world. This is a real letter with real situations and James is gonna give some counsel now on how they're to deal with their troubles and he's counseling them, if you don't pray, you're not gonna make it. That's his encouragement to them and his encouragement to us this morning. If we don't pray, we won't make it. And we need this encouragement from God's word this morning. Before we begin, I wanna go to the Lord in prayer and ask for his help. So I'll pray for you, you pray for me, and we'll get started. Father, we thank you that we can approach your throne this morning, and I bring your, your people before your throne. I ask that you would give them understanding. I ask, God, that you would be their teacher this morning, that you would unpack your word, that you would allow me to serve in this way, and that you would be the focus, that you would be the... Uh, the the change agent that happens here today, that you would be honored and glorified by, by what is preached. More than that, God, that you would take your word that is preached and you would work it and, and use it in the lives of the people seated here for your honor and for your glory. We ask it all in Jesus' name, amen. If you came in this morning and got a bulletin, you should have got a sheet of notes. There's two points. Um, the first one is how we should speak to one another. The second is how we speak to God. And under the second one, there's four additional points. And you'll see why verse 12 kind of stands out by itself. I, had a, I didn't know where to put verse 12 when I was outlining it. So I just, well, actually I didn't have a choice because we had a snow day. So it moved everything for me. So we're gonna look at verse 12 as the first point, how we should speak to one another. And the second point, how we speak to God with four points listed there. But verse 12, the first point, how we should... Speak to one another. He says, but above all, my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no so that you may not fall under condemnation. James uses the words, but above all, it's, it's to signify this letter is coming to an end. And we need to pay special attention to what he's saying now. He's, James has continued to talk about our speech here. He's been doing it since chapter three. And, and, and friends, our words matter. We need to realize this morning that our, all of our words are spoken in the presence of God. There aren't some words on the record and some words off the record with God. They're all on the record. You need to let that sink in. Everything you say, God hears. All of our words are spoken in the presence of God. All of your words, verbally, written, all of your text messages, all of your tweets, if you tweet, all of your Facebook posts, all of your emails, 
All of your words are spoken in the presence of God. So how do you speak? Do we realize that we will be judged for every word we speak? Matthew 12, 36, on the day of judgment, people will give an account for every careless word they speak. We will give an account for all the words we say. Whether that is a church-related conversation where we put on the, the church clothes and talk the church talk, or that email chastising our coworker or boss. How you talk on the phone when your bill was wrong. How do you talk to Comcast when they raise your rates after 12 months? All of those words are spoken before God. Are you known as someone who speaks the truth? That's what James is talking about here. Douglas Moo, one commentator, says, when James says, do not swear, it's not coarse or vulgar speech he prohibits, but invoking God's name to guarantee the reliability of what a person says. He's, he's forbidding people to invoke God's name to guarantee some blessing or promise that they were unable or unwilling to accomplish on their own. Now, James isn't saying that we shouldn't make any oaths at all. It's perfectly appropriate to give an oath during a testimony in court or for a position in the church or for your marriage, but we shouldn't take an oath when we need to make a commitment for the weekend. Our yes should be yes or our no should be no. We need to be honest and speak the truth. As Christians, we should be marked as being truthful. We should never say the words, I swear to God. It should never come into our vocabulary. That's, that's what's common in our culture. You hear that. If you count yourself as a Christian here this morning, your yes should be yes and your no should be no. And this is a challenge to all of our everyday conversations. Our words matter. Our yes should be yes and our no should be no. And I believe the second one, the no, is sometimes harder if we're honest this morning. Sometimes because of our pride or because of the fear of man, we sometimes don't say a no when we should, or we say a maybe. Our yes should be yes, and our no should be no. If it's a no, say no. The question here this morning is, are our words reliable? Do we follow through with our commitments? When I say I'll do something, do I then follow through? When you say you're going to show up, do you show up? When you commit to serve in children's ministry, do you serve in children's ministry? Or do you agree with something knowing that you won't do it and planning to make certain excuses and why you won't? You're more worried about saving face. You're more worried about what they might think about you if you say no. Perhaps you need to think deeply about this. And even more, to make you more uncomfortable, perhaps you need to ask someone else. Does your yes mean yes? And does your no mean no? We should be known as truthful people as Christians. So we need to follow James' command here. Let your yes be yes, your no be no. So that's how we speak to one another. And this leads to the second point in the majority of the sermon, how we speak to God. And the first is with prayer and praise, verse 13. James now switches gears, still talking about our words, but now how we should speak to God. Verse 13, is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. You can almost see the hands of the people in church raised when James asks the question, is anyone among you suffering? One commentator said, the Christian does not always live on the mountaintop of faith. Can you echo that this morning? 
I mean, isn't that true? And I know that those of you here this morning are experiencing this suffering and hardships in life. And they needed this encouragement because they're, they're experiencing the suffering. And their natural, natural inclination, as we've seen in chapter 4, is to, is to fight and to quarrel with one another. Or, or they begin to, to grumble at one another, biting and devouring one another, as Galatians says. Do we understand this? How, how many times have you lashed out at someone close to you when you're not feeling well or you're suffering? And that's the excuse. Sorry, sorry, I didn't mean to hurt your feelings. I have a headache. I'm not myself. I'm in pain. And he, he's saying when you're suffering, you need to pray. Go to God. Charles Spurgeon so beautifully paints the picture for us. Heaven's great harbor of refuge is prayer. Thousands of weather-beaten vessels have found a haven there, and the moment a storm comes in, it is wise for us to make for it with all sail. To go to the Lord in prayer. When we've found ourselves beaten and bruised in the waters of life, James is telling us to find ourselves in the harbor of God who brings refuge through prayer. Friends, prayerlessness is spiritual suicide. Prayerlessness is a blindfold that makes us unaware of the dangers around us. It gives us a false sense of peace and naive courage. It leads us to presume that we don't need the Lord's help. Prayerlessness is spiritual suicide. Is there any day in your life where there isn't something you should be praying for? Is there any activity where we don't need the Lord's help? I mean, just walk through the normal day. Think through your normal day. Is there anything you shouldn't be praying for? The daily activities of, of moms keeping a home running smoothly. Is there anything to be praying for, moms? Affirmative, right? Yes, there is lots. Kids going to school, is there anything that you need to be praying for? Kids, don't check out, by the way. There's lots here for you this sermon. Is there anything to be praying for? Yes. Those that go into the office's meetings with coworkers, business plans, conversations with spouses, conversations with neighbors, conversations with friends, there's lots to be praying for. I've learned from another pastor to include my calendar in my daily times of prayer in the morning. When I finish my reading, I open up my calendar on my phone and begin to pray through the activities of my day, the people that I might see during the day, the meetings that I'll have, clarity for the verses that I'll study or books that I'll, that I'll read, and just walking through my day in prayer. But not only that, we need to pray through the directory. If you're part of this church family, you need to be praying through the directory of our church. We actually provided the guide. It sits in my Bible in the office. It just lists the people out in our church to be praying for. If your last name begins with the letter F and you're in the directory, I prayed for you early this morning before I looked at my sermon. It should be a common part of who we are as Christians. But not only praying through the activities of our life and our church. James encourages us to praise, he says. You see, there's, there's two extremes mentioned in this verse, meaning that the, everything in between, both extremes and everything in between, should be prayed about. And why don't we spend more time reviewing all that God has done during the day? To spend time thanking him for his goodness. You see, friends, it's, it's not that we have to pray. It's that we get to pray. And how often have we thought of it as a duty instead of a joy? Do we understand this? I mean, 
think through this with me just for a moment. How, how many of us get really excited over talking to important people? Just convicted over this. Just a few months ago, I had a chance to drive down to visit another pastor that I appreciated who ministers in Portland. Man, it's farther down the road in ministry than me. He's written a number of books that I've been helped with greatly, and he agreed as I emailed him to have lunch with me, and I could just kind of pick his brain over ministry, and I remember thinking the whole drive down of all the words I'm going to just say in this conversation with this, with this guy who's just a guy, rehearsing all that I wanted to talk about. But this guy, this man, isn't nearly as important as the God of the universe, and we so easily dismiss him. I mean, is there anyone better that you can go to in your trials and your joys than God? Is there really anyone better? Spurgeon has said, many hours are spent with men. How many with your maker? Listen, church, prayer should mark us as different than this world. Prayer should be something that identifies us, that sets us apart differently as this church than the rest of other churches. Prayer should be happening, and I know it is in our church life, through Bible studies during the week. And just this week, actually, I was in the office in the ladies' Bible study. They didn't know this, but I, I walked by to get a cup of coffee, and they were praying. And I went to my office for a while to study, and I finished a whole cup of coffee. Because when you get a cup of coffee, you finish it, you don't reheat it. <laughs> the elders know what I'm talking about. And I go back to get a second cup, because I was still in the morning, and guess what they were doing? They were still praying. I know this happens, and it needs to be continual, and it needs to happen in our care groups and other small groups. And prayer needs to happen in our service. That's why Pastor Ryan and I are laboring every week to write out our prayers, because we want to lead you, the church, to the throne of God. So I've been more deliberate this year in our prayers. We want to teach you how to pray. There's a point behind that. But not only corporately, it needs to be an identifying mark of you individually. Do you pray? Friends, if you're not praying, you're disobeying this verse and many others. Not only praying when we're suffering, but praising God when he, when he continues to supply all he's done, when he's been working. Douglas Moo, the commentary says, a reminder to turn to God is needed even more in times of cheer than in times of suffering. When our hearts are comforted, it's all too easy to forget that this contentment comes ultimately from God. When things are going really well, that's when we forget to pray. When there's no emergencies, that's when we take his grace for granted and we forget him. Friends, you won't make it unless you pray. And we need to be known as people who, who speak to God when times are hard and when times are good. So that's first. We, in prayer and praise, we should speak to God. Second, we should speak to God with the elders. Verses 14 through 15. James says, is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let him pray over him, anointing him with the oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he's committed sins, he'll be forgiven. This has to be on the list of the most misinterpreted verses of the Bible. And there's multiple in this passage. So it was a fun week. First, these verses clearly are not supporting the Roman Catholic practice of extreme unction or the last rites as they're called. That practice by Catholics is, is someone who is thought to be on their deathbed and they're anointed by oil with a priest, make confessions, and therefore spiritually saved before they die. Although there seems to be some like features of what James is saying here, it doesn't jive with him 
or the rest of scriptures for a whole. The confession that James will talk about here in this chapter is to one another, not a particular person and, and not specifically to a priest. And the implication is that they might recover from illness, not die. The second thing I need to mention is that this passage is not talking about healing rallies or endorsing healing ministries. This passage is sometimes quoted for the basis of those ministries. If someone were to have just enough faith that God would absolutely heal them. That's not what James is saying. The focus isn't on the person and the ability. The focus is on God. You should notice also that James is writing to churches and he's focusing on the ministry of the church. I don't know if you noticed this, but James makes an assumption here and I think it, you might have glossed over. He's assuming that they're part of a church. They're remembering of a church. How else are they to call upon the elders of the church if they're not there? They're not involved. They're not connected. He's assuming that they're committed and that they know their elders. Friends, there are no free agent Christians in the New Testament, to use a sports analogy. You cannot find them. It's assumed that they're part of a local church that is governed by a local set of qualified elders. He says, Call for the elders of the church, the, the presbyterios, the plural form. There, there's more than one. It doesn't say the pastor, the senior pastor, but the, the elders, presbyterios, literally the pastors, the overseers. You, you do know that we have more than one pastor in this church. We have more than two pastors in this church. Do you know that, right? If not, you're going to get a lesson. We have five pastors in this church. Two that are, on, that are paid staff pastors and three that are non-staff pastors. The scriptures say we're all pastors. So if I call an elder pastor, that's why. Don't look at me confused. The Bible calls them both. They're pastors and they're elders. It's all of us. So the elders of the church are called here, James says, not to have a healing service, but to go to the one who's suffering. It's, it's someone who's unable to pray. They're without any strength. It's a dire situation. They call out for help from the spiritual leaders of the church, the elders, this person is bedridden it's in such a way that they can't join the assembly together for gathered worship. But, but now come to the focus where perhaps you have most questions. Perhaps. Where our eyes naturally land. What about the oil? I'll share about it, I promise. But you need to understand. The point of this passage is not the oil. There are ministries and people who focus on the oil, but that's not the point. The emphasis is clearly on praying. But James mentions the elders anointing the sick brother or sister with oil. Historically, there have been lots of discussion about the significance of this anointing with oil. Some have wondered, is the, is the oil medicinal? And that's where I've landed in the past. I've come to a different conclusion this week. And oil has common uses in medicine historically. But there's a problem with this view. While, while oil may have had common medicinal purposes in that day, the word was never used in the Greek version of the Old Testament to refer to medicine. Others have wondered, is the oil sacramental? The Catholic Church has said that. But they view this as another sacrament for the means of receiving grace. But this cannot be supported in the text because the focus is on prayer, not the oil, the practice of anointing. So in my humble opinion, I believe the oil is symbolic. It is common in the scripture to see anointing that symbolizes setting apart someone or something for a particular purpose. We saw this when we studied the book of 1 Samuel when Saul was anointed for the position of king. And a variety of different interpretations are clearly possible, but ultimately the power for healing is not found in the oil, but in God who answers prayer. 
While the elders pray over someone, the oil symbolizes setting them apart for special attention and care from God. That's a picture possibly of the Holy Spirit who indwells and watches over each believer when we anoint them with oil and we set them apart to be ministered to in a special way by the Holy Spirit. It's a vehicle for comfort and encouragement. But it doesn't necessarily mean that healing will happen. Just because anointing happens, it doesn't mean that now they have tapped into some special healing section of God's plan that wasn't available before. The elders aren't called because they have special powers or a closer connection than the lowly member. They're called because they represent the church as a whole. So their prayers in the name of the Lord are an expression of the prayers of the entire congregation. But then James moves to even deeper water in verse 15. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he's committed sins, he'll be forgiven. There is nothing false in this verse. This is a true verse. James is correct that the one is, who is sick will be healed and will be raised up. And I do believe that he's talking about physical healing here. But I believe the issues that we have as Christians is in regards to when. When will those who are sick be raised up? We, we struggle with the timing of these events in life. Craig Bloomberg has said, somewhere in our prayers, we must find a balance between never expecting God to heal and requiring God to heal on demand. We should go to God with boldness, asking him to hear and to heal. But we shouldn't always expect it to happen on our timetable. I don't, I don't, I just be honest with you. I don't know if I have good answers here of what exactly James is saying. I do know everyone will be healed one day. A prayer of faith isn't confidence, though, in our own ability to muster enough faith to work ourselves up into a lather to get the faith. But it's a prayer to the object of our faith. The faith is in Jesus Christ. It matters not of you, but where your faith is. What about the last phrase of verse 15? And if he has committed sins, he'll be forgiven. My humble opinion is that when you are physically suffering, you're perhaps more apt to think through all of your life and a self-examination begins to happen. And sick people begin to think of those sins that they might have been harboring and, and want to confess them and forsake them. So it doesn't necessarily mean their sickness is a result of sin, but it could also mean that too. We have plenty of examples in scripture. We have Job as the prime one, but he, also in the Gospels, when, when, when people are sick and they ask, is this his sin or his parents' sins? There's both and, friends, and that's a bigger subject that I'm not gonna tackle this morning. One thing to be certain, God will always act according to his will, and that is plain from Scripture. It's plain from this book. If you remember, if the Lord wills. So true faith Trust God no matter what he does, and it does not arrogantly demand him to act in certain ways. There's certainly more that we could be said about this. Perhaps it'd be a good series to dive into a different time. Another thing I want to make clear there before we move on, that if any church or pastor or preacher comes and writes a book with their face plastered on the cover, telling you that you can just avoid all suffering, that person's a liar. It's a sham. Suffering is not that of our imagination. It's real, and it should be expected for the life of a believer. So if you're reading a book by a well-known 
person that promotes this health and wealth gospel, they're promoting a lie from the pit of hell. The Bible continually promotes the idea, suffering, then glory. Suffering, then glory. And you see this traced throughout the scriptures. And we see this most clearly in Jesus Christ. Suffering, then glory. We'll come back to that, I promise. So we speak to God and we speak with prayer and praise and with the elders. The third one there is with others, verse 16. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. James tells us our words matter and how we speak and what we speak to others matters. Again, this text takes us there, but there is an assumption that the one another mentioned here is that of believers who are part of a local church. Christians should be marked as committed church members, committed to a local church, invested, involved, and faithful. This is the pattern that you see in the New Testament. And James is, is writing here of the outworking of those relationships that there's a one another ministry that's happening. Confession and repentance is a church family concern. And we should all be involved. We have a responsibility in this area. Confession isn't, isn't about a priest sitting in a box, listening to the sins of the entire population of Catholics in a city. When, when, when we live near other Christians and we sin against other Christians, we need to confess our sins to one another. And for this to happen, we need to have real friendships with people that we gather together with each week, who we worship with. And again, I feel like I need to say this. If you feel like church is just an activity that you go to on Sundays, then perhaps you don't understand what the church is all about. You may attend a worship service, but you're really not a part of a local church. Instead, you're just a spectator. And listen, friends, and maybe you don't want to hear this. I'll just push the button anyways. Sin seeks to remain private and secret. And perhaps why you've attended this church for years and never become a member is that you don't want anyone in your business. And I'm not talking about any super sinister sin here, just the fact that you don't want to be known by others. Your refusal to, to commit to other believers is your refusal to obey this verse. Sin wants to remain private and secret, and God wants to expose it and deal with it in a loving fellowship with other Christians. Instead, what happens, and I don't, I'm not God or the Holy Spirit, so I don't know if it happens in our church, but I'm assuming it does, is we walk around with masks on, thinking that no one will notice, no one will understand who we are, what we're dealing with, and you wear a mask thinking that you will fool everyone, but God is not fooled. And you know what his answer is to the mask? He gives you the local church. Right here, these, these people, he knows you need to stop hiding. And his answer is he gives you the church. He gives you one another. If, if you keep the mask up, you will not only hurt yourself, but you will hurt other people that are around you. Parents, your refusal to join a church, to be committed to a church, to be faithful in attendance to a church, to build relationships with the church, not only hurts you, it hurts your kids. They will do the same, possibly to a more extreme level. And if you're here this morning and you're wearing a mask, tightly gripping to you, I pray that you'll be terribly convicted by the Holy Spirit. Our church covenant that we ask members to agree with simply talks about this in prayer and fellowship together as a church. Here is what we have committed to. We will work and pray for the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. 
We will walk together in brotherly love as become the members of a Christian church, exercise an affectionate care and watchfulness over each other and faithfully admonish and entreat one another as the occasion may require. We will not forsake the assembling of ourselves together nor neglect to pray for ourselves and others. The covenant is, is a statement simply of our commitment that we endeavor to accomplish this with the Lord's help. We will be, will we be perfect? Far from it. But we strive to that end. Are you actually, when you're here, building relationships with other people? How can you pray for other people? How can people pray for you if you don't build a relationship with them and tell them who you are and how to pray? You know, there's ways that we, we try to stimulate these relationships in the church as a, as a whole. You can join a care group, a small group. You can join a Bible study and invest in people and begin to develop relationships. You can just start having people over for lunch every week. You can join us for the Sunday school hour and be a part of the class and get to know the other students in his class. You can stick around when we have a potluck meal and sit at a table and get to know other people. Just so you know, our next meal is April 28th. We'd love to have you there. And all of these, there, there are more that we give you an opportunity to build relationships with others so that you can obey this verse in your life. Because solo Christians don't make it. They just don't make it. Well, I've gone off base. I'll come back. James is talking about healing here in verse 16. And ultimately, bodily healing apart from repentance is just preserving yourself from more judgment. If God is using a sickness or suffering to make you ask eternal questions about him, you need to understand that this is the kindness of the Lord to you. No matter what others say, if you have prosperity now in this life, it doesn't mean that God has given his favor for your eternity. And sickness and suffering are not a sign of God's disapproval in your life either. The lesson we, we learn here in another passage of scripture is that unconfessed sin blocks the pathway of prayer to God. But maybe another lingering question that comes from this passage is what should we do when, when someone we love is experiencing suffering? They're sick. Is, is it okay to pray for healing? Should we? Absolutely, yes. Most definitely. You can pray for that. But more than that, we need to submit our lives to the Lord so that when we pray, we pray according to his will and not our own. I don't know if you're aware of Pastor James Boyce who ministered in Philadelphia for many years but he was found to have cancer. And when that came to the surface and then shared with his church, he had one last message into his congregation. And he tackled some of these questions that people have in his fam church family that he ministered for so many years. And I'm just gonna read what he shared. He says, a number of you, this is from his sermon, a number of you have asked what you can do. And it strikes me that what you can do, you are doing. This is a good congregation. And you do the, the right things. You're praying certainly. And I've been assured of that by many people. And I know of many meetings that have been going on a relevant question, I guess, when you pray is what to pray for. Should you pray for a miracle? Well, you're free to do that, of course. My general impression is that God, who is able to do miracles, and he certainly can, is also to keep you from getting the problem in the first place. So although miracles do happen, they're rare by definition. A miracle has to be an unusual thing. I think it's far more profitable to pray for wisdom for the doctors. Doctors have a great deal of experience, of course, in their experience, and they're not omniscient, they do make mistakes, and then also for the effectiveness of the treatment. 
Sometimes it does very well and sometimes not so well. And that's certainly a legitimate thing to pray for. Above all, though, he says, I would say pray for the glory of God. If you think of God, glorify himself in history. And you say, where in all of history has God most glorified himself? He did it at the cross of Jesus Christ. And it wasn't delivering Jesus from the cross, though he could have. Jesus said, don't you think I could call down from my father 10 legions of angels for my defense? But he didn't do that. And yet, that's where God is most glorified. And friends, this is where our minds need to race. In the midst of suffering, it's to the cross. Suffering, then glory. Jesus Christ went to the cross to satisfy, to satisfy God's wrath towards us so that we could be made right with God and come to him in prayer. James says the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. When we're in Christ, our prayers go to the Father because of the work of Jesus Christ. The prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective, and we have one, Jesus Christ, interceding on our behalf. We can approach the throne of God only because of the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.21, For our sake he made him, him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So we, we speak to God through prayer and praise, through the elders to one another, and last, we speak with God with encouragement. Verse 17, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. I love this example, probably for the same reason James does. Elijah was a man like us. If you're to spend the afternoon, I encourage you to, if you have time, to read 1 Kings 17 through 19, you would see Elijah was a man just like us. He, he had strengths and he had weaknesses, and he loved the word of God, he, because when he speaks, he speaks the word of God to his people. And when you come to, it's a, it's a fantastic story. You really need to spend some time. 1 Kings 17, you come to a, to a prayer of faith, the same that James is talking about in this passage. He, he trusted in God to fulfill his word, which ultimately was, is what prayer is, friends, that God would fulfill his promises to his people. And Elijah's prayers had the goal of bringing repentance and confession to the whole nation, which would bring back God's people to a right relationship with him. But I think there's a second reason why James uses Elijah as an example for his prayers. I think it has to do with the time between the prayers and their answers in this situation. And this seems to be always the issue for us as humans. We don't like to wait. You cannot tell if a prayer uh, that, would, that it would not rain has been answered until when. All right? it, until there's been a lengthy period of drought. You had to wait. He, he prayed. You couldn't say the next day, well, I guess God answered. Maybe just didn't for 24 hours or maybe for two weeks. He had to wait. Something that we struggle with mightily. See, James is saying Elijah was an ordinary man who prayed to an extraordinary God. An incredible scene on Mount Carmel was perhaps this prophet's finest moment in ministry. Within hours, though, within hours, he was so scared he flees and runs from Jezebel. He's a man like us. 
One moment strong in the Lord and his power to answer, the next moment struggling to believe at all. Alec Moiter writes, he could rise to the heights of faith and commitment and fall into the depths of despair and depression. He could be brave and then fly for his life at a whiff of danger. He could be selfless in his concern for others and then filled with self-pity. In other words, he was an ordinary person, but he was right with God. His faith was active in his works. I encourage you to spend some time this week in, in 1 Kings because you'll see yourself in the life of Elijah. I do. I see myself. Well, let me kind of close things up and ask, how is your prayer life, friends? How are you doing at thanking God at the end of every day for the blessings for that day? Or are you a plagiarist? Do you take credit for something that you didn't do? Plagiarism is a refusal to give thanks and give credit. Therefore, it's a form of theft. Are you guilty of this? Of cosmic ingratitude, of cosmic plagiarism. It's an illusion that you're spiritually self-sufficient. It's, it's taking credit for something that was a gift. It is the belief that you know what's best and you have the power and ability to keep your life on the right path and the ability to protect yourself from any danger. It's a delusion and it's dangerous, friends. And the truth is, we are never as thankful as we should be. When good things come to us, we do everything possible to tell ourselves that we have accomplished that, or at least we deserve it. And in so doing, we take the credit. And when our lives simply aren't going smoothly, without much trouble, we don't like to live in continual amazement and thankfulness of our God. Instead, we take the credit and we rob God of his glory that is due him. And friends, we won't make it if we continue down this path. Are you going to make it, Christian? If you're not praying, then you won't. We need to be resolved as a people of prayer. Some of you that are new to our church and have been here for the last few weeks or few months, thank you for joining us in worship but realize that you're here because we prayed and God answered. God brought you here because we desire to make his name famous in this area. We desire to bring him glory. And so you're here as a result of God answering those prayers. Children that are here, those of you that are Christians, it's because your parents have been praying for you and God's been answering. Marriages that begin here. Marriages that are saved here a result of God answering prayers. Churches have begun an area because of the prayers of God's people. Missionaries have been sent and supported because of God's faithfulness through our prayers. And how many saints have made it home safely because we've prayed? come to realize that's the greatest legacy I can leave as a pastor.
I thought that when I became a pastor, uh, my greatest job was to lead and teach people how to live. But I've learned my greatest job is teaching people how to die. How to die to themselves. How to die to the world. How to die headed home safely to the arms of Jesus. Prayer is so important for the Christian life that God has made it so that we can do it anytime, any day. No matter what age you are seated here this morning, you can go to God in prayer. John Calvin says, there's no time in which God does not invite us to himself. There's no time in which God is not calling you to himself for the 80-year-olds here and for the eight-year-olds. You can go to God in prayer anytime. And the only way you're gonna make it is through prayer. Let's go to God now. Father, we thank you that we can draw near to you in confidence, knowing that you hear us. Thank you, God, that you're teaching us to be people of prayer. No matter if we're suffering or things are going really well, God, help us to be people of prayer. God, I pray that you would help us as a church to pray. Help us, God, that when we desire and even have times of prayer that are that we as a church don't just discount that as, as something that's not important, that I, could, I can skip or I can miss. Help us to make it a priority. Joining together with other brothers and sisters, coming before your throne. Father, help us in our, in our daily time with you. If we haven't been doing it, may we begin today Tomorrow morning that we spend time in your word, that we spend time praying for our days and for our families, that we spend time praying for our church, getting to know people in our church through the avenue of prayer. And they would seek other people out during the week to, to find out ways that we can pray for them. That help us as, as best as we know how to, to be connected to this church. We recognize that everyone's the same or built the same, but give us wisdom and discernment to know what that looks like for our lives and that we'd be seeking to be involved with others in the church. Help us, God, to be a praying people. Help us to be faithful in you. We thank you that we can come to you now and that we can come to you always. We ask this all in Jesus' name, amen.